0: Bradley Bounds. This is a solemn podcast where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Trevor Hudson on the podcast. Trevor Hudson is an ordained minister in the Methodist Church of Southern Africa. After spending 40 years doing pastoral ministry in a local congregation, he now gives his time to lecturing, teaching. And writing in the areas of spiritual formation and spiritual direction. Throughout his life as a pastor and teacher, he has sought to prioritize the discipleship ministry of local congregations, build bridges across different streams within Christian community, and relate spiritual formation to daily life within the context of our suffering world. He is married to Debbie and is the father of two children, Joni, married to James, and Mark, married to, uh, you want to help me with this one, uh, Trevor. Marika. Marika, gotcha. Okay. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to pre-order Seeking God if you want to find out more. So Trevor, welcome and thanks for joining me today.
1: Ryan, right. It's really a, a privilege for me and I want to say thank you to you. Thank you so much.
0: Yes. Thank you for joining me. All right, well, we're here to discuss uh, your new book, Seeking God, coming out through Tyndale Press. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, Seeking God generally?
1: Mm. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a, a strap line to the title Seeking God, and that is finding another kind of life with uh, St. Ignatius and Dallas Willard. And so the book really is a, a modest attempt to bring together two um Two voices that have been really formative in their own contexts, together with my own voice as well, and just to draw readers into that journey of of becoming seekers after God.
0: Hmm. Gotcha. Well, what prompted you to seek to write uh, Seeking God exactly?
1: It really came from Debbie. I'm married to Debbie, and uh, Debbie's never read any of my books. And one day uh, she said to me, this was about five, six years ago, she said to me, "Trivia, now I know what the theme of your next book's going to be." And I was really surprised. Uh, and she said, you, "You're going to write about seeking because uh, ever since I've known you, you've been a bit of a seeker. So I hmm. guess, I guess she prompted the thought uh, and I really have been a seeker. The word seek is very important for me. And then also just as a pastor, you know, ministering within today's context, I'm deeply, deeply aware that we live in an age of spiritual seeking. And so I uh, I really wanted to bring my own seeking quest uh, together with those, perhaps those readers around me who also are seeking, um, a deeper friendship, deeper relationship, deeper
0: experience of God in their own life. Huh? That's fascinating to me. Your wife has never read any of your books before this.
1: You're right. She's, she says she, she knows she, she spent 42 years with me. She knows what I think. And (laughs) she doesn't, she doesn't need to read the books to find out, uh, what I feel most deeply about. So, but I, I do need to say, Riley, that sometimes when she can't fall asleep at night, she, she may say something to me like, why don't you read something quite deep from one of your books and maybe ah. that'll help me to that'll help me to go to sleep. So uh, sometimes yeah. I do I do read parts of the books for her to help her on
0: that journey into sleep. Well, that's a well fair. Uh, fair enough. That's a good point, actually. That she, you know, she, she knows you well enough. But uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, actors that don't watch their own movies. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, how did the How did the book kind of come to you or unfold in your thought as you were writing it?
1: Thank you. Uh, you know, it uh, just to give a little bit of a backstory with. Uh, as, as briefly as I can, I've obviously been deeply, deeply influenced by, um, on the one hand, uh, Ignatius, Ignatius of Loyola, um, a Catholic. Uh, I did the spiritual exercises of Ignatius in 1990. So he had a very formative influence on my own life. And then mm. also uh, a friendship with um, the writer and the philosopher Dallas Willard, that was a friendship that began in 1985 until his death. Mm-hmm. And so he too had a very formative influence. so I just wanted to bring, because I had, this, I had this intuitive sense that they were saying things that were very, very similar, or they were emphasizing things around discipleship. That were really, really similar, even though that they lived centuries apart. And mm. so, I had an interest in wanting to bring these two voices together, and obviously, in uh, to do that in my own in my own accent and in my own voice as well.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, um, I come from Talbot School of Theology in Dallas, had uh, quite the influence on the spiritual formation program. Um, right. I know several of uh, his very devoted readers there uh, would just love me to ask what was Dallas just like generally as a person?
1: Right. Thank you for that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That's a very big question. When when Dallas came to South Africa uh, on a number of occasions and each time came at our invitation and so we got to name uh, quite well. Um, I think as a person, um, a word that comes immediately to mind, a man of of deep humility, a man who had um, capacity to really be attentive uh, to you when he was with you, mm-hmm. and a man for whom Christ was absolutely central mm. uh, to to his own life, and central in many different ways. Central as teacher, as friend, as master, as lord. Um, mm. uh, so those are the, those are the characteristics of Dallas that come immediately to my mind in response to
0: that question, Ryan. Mm-hmm. yeah as i was reading uh, seeking god um you recount this night when uh, dallas was you found him in your living room uh and he was just uh on his knees uh talking to god aloud i thought that that was um that was very moving and inspiring uh just because willer was this towering academic and sure. in intellect uh sure. and yet he had this kind of uh, boy-like conversation uh, with God. And I thought that that was even into his sixties, I think at that point, and that was just, right, that right. was just such a, such a touching um, recounting. So,
1: Right. And it really spoke to me very deeply because, you know, here was this, as you were saying, this very learned person, professor of philosophy um, mm-hmm. in a very childlike uh, kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. um with the Lord. And just that had a very, very powerful effect on me.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Well, what I want to ask now is why Willard is St. Ignatius of, of all people?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think that they both in their own contexts, both of them, God seemed to work through in rather extraordinary ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for Ignatius, within his own context, and and Ignatius, as you may know, and as your readers may know, was a lay person for most of his life, not for Mm -hmm. all of his life, but for most of his life. So they were both lay uh, at one level working, you know, Ignatius, a lay person, Dallas, um, while he did serve as an uh, ordained uh, uh, Southern Baptist minister, he also uh, served most of his life as a professor of philosophy in a secular university. Um, but God seemed to use both of them as it were to bring um, to bring renewal. Um, mm-hmm. I think they were agents of reformation within their own contexts mm-hmm. and and, and I was drawn to, to bring those two voices together um, mm-hmm. and just to highlight maybe ways in which they echoed each other across the centuries and in very, very different contexts. One, a Spanish Catholic context and the other in an American, primarily, predominantly American evangelical
0: context. Well, I know that uh, some of our friends who might read this uh, would be uncomfortable with the idea that we are turning to these two men instead of just uh, seeking out uh, content in the Bible to, for guidance. Um, sure. So what I want to ask is, is uh, would you consider this to be idolatrous to look up to men like Willard and St. Sure. Ignatius? That's-
1: no, thank you for no, thank you so much for that question. I think to to quickly say, I think the danger is to put anyone on a pedestal, um, mm. and I think we I think particularly over the last five six years we've we've witnessed the danger of really idolizing any Christian leader. Mm. Um, so I think we need to be very mindful of of that danger that you have verbalized of idolizing either Ignatius uh, and or Willard. Um, I think to uh, I think also just to say very quickly that both of them would point us very very strongly beyond themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, when you, for, in terms of Ignatius, Ignatius didn't like write any books, but we have the exercises which he put together, and if, and just a quick look through the exercises, 80% of them deeply, deeply rooted in the Gospels, and uh, Dallas, you know, just constantly uh, pointing uh, beyond himself, uh, both to Christ and to Scripture. so. I think that um, I think both of them would want us uh, to, to look beyond them um, and would want us to look towards scripture and particularly would want us to look towards Christ Mm -hmm. in a Christward direction. um, And I think would be highly, highly uncomfortable um, with us in any way, uh, in any way, wanting to to idolise them or put them on a pedestal, I don't think they would want us to do that. And I also think, though, that I, I think most of your uh, listeners would, you know, we, I think, you know, when we look at the Christian family throughout the centuries, God has used certain people in quite remarkable ways, and I think. I think it's wise for us to, to be attentive to some of the things that they've said. I'm a Methodist, and while I certainly wouldn't idolize John Charles Wesley, I think they've got some pretty good things to say, and, uh, and, and I would want us to hear their voices. I just think that we, we live in this incredible family and we, there's some wonderful voices in the family. And mm-hmm. um, I would want us to listen
0: to them without idolizing them. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that that would apply to the even uh, uh, biblical writers like Paul. You know, uh, We don't want to idolize them, but uh, they're also not Jesus. So the sword cuts both ways.
1: Um,
0: sure. So uh, piggybacking off of what you said about uh, God really giving special grace to some people uh, throughout Christian history. Do you think that God gave Willard um, a special kind of grace to be who he was, or do you think that we can all be like Willard in the end?
1: I think, I think uh, Dallas, Dallas would, would want to say, please don't become another Willard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh and I think for me, the encouragement is that here were two people, very fallible, um, who somehow were deeply abandoned to God, mm-hmm. deeply, deeply yielded to Christ. And I think what they, what they reveal to us mm-hmm. through their lives is what God can do with a life that is um, is deeply yielded, deeply abandoned, deeply surrendered to Christ. So I think for me, both of them encourage me not in, as it were, to imitate Ignatius or to imitate Dallas, but I think for me to just bring Trevor and <laughs> And just bring myself, warts and all, to God and surrender to myself, myself to Christ on an ongoing basis, and trust that that God will do in my life and what God uniquely would like to do with my life, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the I think the encouragement is that that when, that God is not going to ask me one day, Trevor, why weren't you, why weren't you like Dallas, or why weren't you like Ignatius, but I I do think that, that God may say, Trevor, you know, I really, I really wanted you to become the Trevor that I created you to be, Um, Mm -hmm. and if that makes, if that makes sense, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that we, that we bring glory to God as we grow into the unique people uh, that God wants us to, to become and to be. Mm, yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, on the other side of that, then St. Ignatius, uh, so you are a Protestant as a Methodist. So right. what, uh, what, what drew you as a Protestant to the spiritual exercises of a Catholic like uh, St. Ignatius?
1: No, th- thank you for that uh, uh, question. I think it was really a, <coughs> what drew me to Ignatius was I knew nothing about him. And it was 1990. I found myself in a bit of a vocational crisis. And uh, I was at a retreat center, uh, an Anglican retreat center. And one of the sisters there, as I spoke to her about the uh, kind of vocational crisis that I was in, of just seeking to discern how to live it out, she said to me, Trevor, why why don't you do the exercises uh, of Ignatius. Um, And I had no idea what they were about. And then she, uh, she suggested someone uh, who could lead me through them. Uh, And so I went to this person, he happened to be an Anglican, an Anglican monk. And I asked him uh, whether he would lead me through the exercises. And so I really went in there with no prior knowledge. Uh, And uh, as you and your readers may know, you can do the exercises in two different ways. You can either do them within a kind of secluded residential area, enclosed 30 days of retreat, or you can do them in daily life. And that takes about nine or 10 months. where you meet with the person who gives you the exercises, you meet with them once a week and they give you the, the, the material. So I really just went into it, um, without any prime knowledge, uh, mm-hmm. on the, with, you know, with the encouragement of this, um, with this Benedictine Anglican nun. And they were just, they just really were God used them in a very deep way in my own life. Um, and I think at the, after I had done them, I, I kind of I, I wanted to share the treasure, as it were, with my own Protestant friends. And mm. um, hence, that's the way I found my way into them.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um,
1: and, and I think it is important to say that the exercises do need to be adapted. Um, and adaptation is a very real principle Uh, Of giving the exercises. The exercises are always adapted uh, to the the person and to the context in which they are
0: given. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, why do you think it's important to explore spiritual formation in the Protestant church today, specifically?
1: Well, I think because it's filled with many people who've been born again, who haven't learned to live again, and... uh, (laughs) And I really mean that, you know, that um, I think we, I think there is a credibility crisis that somehow, um, you know, we, that we, we, we speak of having a experience of, of being born again by the spirit Mm -hmm. and, and somehow, the crisis of credibility is that that has not, that new birth has not found expression in our lives, in our characters, Mm. in the way we live and relate and respond to the crises of our age. And I think that speaks of of the real need, for spiritual formation uh, within within our congregations and within our lives. Um, Mm -hmm. Besides that, you know, there is the, you know, I think of Paul's writings in the New Testament and his use of those three verbs that we need to be transformed, we need to be conformed, and we need to be formed. Um, Mm -hmm. And... So I, I think that both in terms of the credibility crisis, but also because of the of the imperatives uh, in the letters of Paul, that for the need for us to be transformed into the image of Christ uh, in our mm-hmm. own lives. Right.
0: Um, yeah, I I've, I've noticed I I've bounced around denominations in Protestantism, um, and in Anglicanism and then in mainline Protestant denominations like Methodism, um, there there still remains a pretty heavy emphasis on the doctrine of sanctification, which is a growing likeness to God. Um, But in evangelicalism, I've noticed that that's practically non-existent. Um, It's as Dallas would say, just as if I'd never sinned and you know, we can be on our merry way. Um, So, I think that what you're doing here is highlighting a um, a very important aspect of the Christian life that we just don't really have much of a hold on here in the States anymore because of the prevalence of the evangelical church.
1: Yeah, I, I really do think, Riley, I do think that at the heart of the gospel, really at the heart of the gospel, there is an invitation to real uh, real the, the the real transformation of the human being that we really are invited to put it very simply we're invited into another kind of life to become mm-hmm. the person that really god wants us to be i've just put sanctification there's a doctrine of sanct- in just in really in easy english that mm-hmm. i hope i hope makes sense
0: yeah, no, I I love that phrase. By the way, uh, born again but not live, but not living again. So that, that's that's very that's a good way to put it. Um, well, what would you say is the biggest obstacle to spiritual formation, and why do you think that that's the case?
1: No, well, that's a a big question. I think one of the biggest obstacles to to spiritual formation is that somehow in our preaching. We don't hold out the possibilities of um, that. We don't hold out the possibilities of, in fact, an, a, a, a different kind of life, a new kind of life. Mm-hmm. So the obstacle to spiritual formation, I think, is often within the gospel that we preach, <laughs> that we that we are not announcing the possibility in Christ of having a different kind of life. And when we do proclaim that um, as a a critical ingredient of our proclamation, when we do proclaim the availability of another kind of life, then I think people will begin to say, well, that's what I want. Uh, And then spiritual formation becomes, if I may use a phrase of Dallas. It just becomes a very natural part of, of salvation. Uh, it, it, it just becomes the way to go.
0: Um, well, getting more into the book uh, proper now, uh, the writer of your forward, uh, William Berry, uh, writes that God has from the arrival of the human beings wanted our friendship. Now, why, do you, why should we think that this is true?
1: For me, the um, the the wonderful offer of God, as I read through Scripture, and I love this word, is this word friendship. That you know, I think we often talk of having a personal relationship with God. The Bible doesn't necessarily use that phrase, personal relationship with God, but mm-hmm. what the Bible does do as you know is the bible gives us many different uh, images or metaphors of the kind of relationship that we can have with god and and i think one of the most beautiful beautiful images of the kind of relationship that we can have with god is caught up in this metaphor of friendship you know jesus on just before he's going to be crucified said i call you servants no longer i call you friends and so mm. that there is a sense in which god has god has created us for the sake of friendship with god mm. um so i personally am drawn very deeply uh, to the metaphor of friendship as a description of the kind of relationship that we are invited to with God, a mm. kind of intimate friendship. Um, you know, Abram being described as God's friend, almost as a prototype, uh, of the, of the friendship
0: into which you and I are invited, uh, uh, with God. Right. Um, I hear many, uh, conservative and well-meaning theologians say that, uh, god doesn't need god doesn't need anything um god doesn't need our friendship god doesn't need uh us to be alive or anything like that um but i think that that would uh take away from uh the love of, of god i think that that really um uh ignores part really the the whole of his nature in a way it, it might be true oh. that god doesn't need us to exist or anything like that but it's as a consequence of his loving nature that we do.
1: I love the I love I love the way you put it. Uh, I never forget. Many years ago, I was with Desmond Tutu, who died a, a year or two ago, and he once asked us together. He said, "You know, why did God create us?" and uh, and uh, he just made it so clear to us in his own beautiful way that God. You know, God wasn't lonely. You know, God has lived in eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and mm-hmm. it's really out of the abundance of this relational life that God already has that God creates us, and that mm-hmm. God creates us simply because God wants us to be here. That God right. has God has actually desired us into existence for the sake of friendship with the Trinity, uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I just find that I just find that very moving that God wants you to be here and God wants me to be here for the Absolutely. sake of fr- for the sake of friendship and partnership.
0: Yes, yeah, it's lovely. Well, um, you write that Christians tend to believe that only seekers of God are unbelievers and once they accept Christ as their Lord and Savior then the search for God just uh, ends. Now, why do you think that that's the case with Christians today?
1: Well, you know, I think, you know, I don't know, Riley, if you were around, but I think it was around about the in the 90s. You know, we would uh, many of these very big churches would have seeker services and they were aimed, they were aimed for the kind of, quote unquote, the unchurched and for the lost. And it was Still around almost today. As if, <laughs> And you know that, so we will have these special outreaches for seekers, and the assumption being that once you came to Christ, then you stop being a a seeker. Mm -hmm. But I think when I read scripture, I have the sense that the Christian faith is, in fact, about seeking, Um, Mm -hmm. you know. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and there's almost the assumption that that as we come to him, we will now embrace a seeking life at an even deeper level, that I now will truly seek God's way and seek uh, God's reign and seek what God wants in every aspect of my life. So there's a sense in which Once I've entered or embraced Christ um, as my Lord and Savior, that now I enter into a life of seeking at an ever deeper level. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I really, for me, it is, it's really captured in, you know, in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, uh, that Mm -hmm. I'm really called to become a seeker. And I think there's something tragic. When we stop seeking, Mm, Uh, I think mm -hmm. think something, something, I don't know, something dries up within us uh, when we lose that seeking heart.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think it goes, it doesn't doesn't just stop at we seek God, and um, so we're going to be uh, kind of just in this blissful, search for all our lives, but we're not going to find anything. Um, I think what, I think you go further and you say that we can be in the kingdom of God right now, not just waiting until we die. And then, you know, we live out the rest of our lives, plucking harps in the clouds, you know? Um, So what I want to ask is why think that we can be in God's kingdom now, as opposed to just after death.
1: Right. Uh, I think you're asking big questions and very important questions. <laughs> you know, for me, the, the essence of the good news of Jesus and you know Mark 1, 14, 15, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have this you have this incredible announcement of the availability, the present availability of of God to ordinary people like you and me, that right now I can step into that life with God within the realm of his kingdom. Mm-hmm. So that so that I think so often when we use the word kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, we often think that it's something far away and something much later. Mm-hmm. And for me, Jesus the wonderful good news of jesus is that he's saying it's available now and you can step into it now and maybe we well we won't know its fullness now but we can begin to experience some of its reality Mm -hmm. in our present life right now Um, and as you and your readers will know, John in his gospel doesn't use the language kingdom of God as much as the synoptic writers do. He talks much more of eternal life um, or, or uses the, this wonderful word Zoe, Zoe life. Mm-hmm. But, but it's something that, that it's not a life I'm waiting for, you know. Jesus says, I think it's John 17, eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, that this is a present reality in which I enter into now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, and having entered it, I continue to seek it at even deeper and richer dimensions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, I might be going out of my depth here, but um, I remember in uh, The Divine Conspiracy, uh, Dallas he outlined uh the term uranos uh which refers to heaven um and the heavens could be construed as also the sky or the uh atmosphere around uh the subject i think an example would have been uh peter's vision of the uh, animals and the uh, what's that the unfurling of the uh carpet or what what, 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 what was was uh, that again
1: kind of the the blanket that
0: came down there right yeah um so that would signify that uh heaven is not just close but here in a way um and obviously that's that's we're we're not going to get the full uh the full dose of heaven in this life but um that does mean that god is here. that God, you know, is is heaven itself. It seems, in a way.
1: Um, yeah, I, I like what you're saying, there, Riley, in terms of that. That, that the announcement of the availability of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, that that is undergirded by the, the startling reality of the immediate presence of God in the here and now that Mm -hmm. God meets me in this present moment where I am Mm -hmm. Um, and I think when we use language like kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven I think we really need to stress its availability to ordinary people like you and me within the context of our present lives
0: Mm -hmm. right now um as we pursue the fullness of that life um the way you describe it is a bit different um, than most would uh you write that step by step jesus leads us into the fullness of life that is the astounding promise of the gospel now that's very different from this popular notion of the gospel as just the acknowledgement of christ's atoning death and then the acceptance of his lordship and deity so tell us first how you would articulate the gospel and then tell us how you uh, came about uh, that conception of it.
1: Thank you again for another very big question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would see if I can, if I, and I hope I'm not trivializing in any way what you've said, mm-hmm. uh, that when Jesus announced the gospel, he spoke about the availability the kingdom of God. And I think when I really allow myself to, to think deeply about that, that I want to share with others the gospel that Jesus shared, which is the availability of the kingdom of God. And what I do in the book, very simply, is I look for a simple English phrase that can make that understandable. And Mm -hmm. for me, the phrase that most gets at that is, that when Jesus offered the availability of the kingdom, he offered to us the availability of another kind of life. And not only does he offer that life to us, I've come to bring you life, and I've come to bring it to you in all its fullness, but he also offers himself to us as the way into that life. So Mm. on on the one hand, he's saying, I want to give you another kind of life. And then on the other hand, he is saying to us, I want you to follow me into that life. And it's as we follow him that he leads us into the life. So for hmm. me, the gospel is on the one hand, the offer of a new kind of life, which, which, which God has made possible for each one of us through his life, through definitely through his death, and through his resurrection of jesus and then he also offers christ offers us himself as the way into that life Mm -hmm. Uh, and Mm -hmm. hence the quotation that you gave from the book that jesus says to me says to you follow me i will lead you into the life that i'm offering you
0: Mm -hmm. right and uh lest lest we be misunderstood um I want to uh, kind of suss out here, yeah, your conception of repentance and emphasize the importance of it. Mm. So, I want to ask, how first does repentance really factor into your conception of the gospel?
1: Well, as you know, when you, it was the very for Matthew, it's the very first word he puts on the lips of Jesus. you know the kingdom of heaven is available. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is available. A mark, uh, the kingdom of God is available, or at hand, repent and believe the good news. Um, mm-hmm. and so for me, repentance is this it's not a threat, <laughs> um, it's a beautiful invitation. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's 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 Christ's announcing the availability of a, of a new kind of life, and now. The word repent, you know, it's, Trevor, turn around, change direction, and enter into this life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, repentance, and I, I seek to do this in the book, repentance is really the doorway through which I walk through into the life that God wants to give us. Um mm-hmm. I also go one step further and it's not only as it were the doorway into this life, but it's the pathway that I walk along each day, that each day I turn towards Christ and I turn towards the life that he wants to offer me. That repentance, as it were, is not a one-off experience in the past but mm-hmm. that I I am constantly turning towards Christ uh, each mm-hmm. day. Uh, so for mm-hmm. me, uh, repentance is is absolutely fundamental to my experience uh, of the gospel in my own life.
0: Right. Yeah. And I'm, I I love and agree with your with your articulation of repentance. Um, I do know some. Uh, again, well-meaning, but uh, maybe more hardline um, uh, brothers in Christ who would say that reframing repentance as something positive and not just a command to stop sinning uh, is kind of what you might say dancing around what repentance is or diminishing the gravity of turning away from sin. So. Uh, sure. Do you think that, uh, what, how, how would you address that, that concern?
1: Thank you, thank you. I think it would be a concern that many of our brothers and sisters would have um, that maybe my reframing it in a positive way plays down the uh, importance of turning away from sin in our lives. I think my, my, my own response would be very, very simple to that, that 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 as I turn towards Christ, mm-hmm. I, am to, I am by implication turning away from that which stands in the way of my friendship and of my relationship with christ but Mm. for me the focus of repentance is as as i as i understand it and as christ uses that word he's He's saying something, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. A new way of life, Trevor, is available to you. Now turn into it. And as I turn into that life, simultaneously, I am turning away from that which gets in the way of me living that life. Mm -hmm. But for me, the impetus to repent is good news. It's not bad news. Mm -hmm. Um, The the impetus to repent is, Trevor, there is a wonderful life available for you. And you're invited to turn into it. You're invited Mm -hmm. to, to rethink your whole life on the basis that something radically new Uh, is available to you and I think I think Riley you know that that when I focus on Christ in repentance and when I turn towards him I don't know how to put this there is a kind of expulsive power (laughs) that that as I turn to him it it begins to expel
0: Hmm.
1: those things in my life that are sabotaging my relationship with God, that are getting in the way of that relationship with Christ.
0: Hmm. And
1: and that's why I I do want to reframe repentance as as a good... It's a a wonderful word. It's a beautiful Hmm. word because it makes possible the entrance into a new way of life.
0: Yeah. um, It, it did. It reminded me just in this moment of an old hymn that I used to sing in my missionary Baptist church way back when uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And it goes, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Um, And I think that your conception of repentance hits on um, just a natural consequence of living life with God and seek and seeking him as opposed to something that we just kind of bootstrap our way through and, you know, be good little boys and girls. So
1: Listen, and let me hold what you said, Riley, because it's really important. I think, I think, I think that that was one of the first choruses I ever learned. and there is something about that that is so true. And I would want to, if I may, balance that that as I turn towards Christ, things also become very clear uh, <laughs> that I had that I you know that I haven't seen before. You know, mm-hmm. the, the glory of God becomes clearer. I, even I see my own sinfulness more clearly in the light of His glory. So I mm-hmm. think both, and if I may, if I may say that. Um, but what I it, the the beauty of that chorus for me is that somehow fixing our eyes upon Christ and seeking Him does something very deep in our lives, both in terms of expelling lesser loves and making clear things that I hadn't seen before, um, you know, and that I seem to be just for this, you know, just to be totally honest with your listeners, I can see now the levels of my self-centeredness I can see it much more clearly than I could at the time when I gave myself to Christ um, Mm. as a 16, 17 year old. It's almost as if I become more and more aware in Christ's light of how I need to turn more deeply towards Him.
0: Mm. Yeah, it it does. It reminds me again of a a quote, I think by Augustine uh, Christianity is is a faith seeking understanding um and a life with christ uh provides that clarity i think thank you thank you thank you yeah thank you um so another another thing that you mentioned in the book is that god the god who seeks you far more than you seek him will surely meet you and lead you along the way into another kind of life Mm -hmm. um now many christians would probably be reluctant to admit this but a lot of them don't feel that God pursues them they want to acknowledge sure. it and say that he does but they don't truly in their heart of hearts feel it thank in you, fact same. they they often feel that God uh, sure. pulls away from them Sure. so why think that God pursues us more than we pursue him
1: thank you again, again, you're asking a question that is um, so, so important. Perhaps I can answer that in simply in two ways, Riley. On the one hand, as I, on the one hand, as I read scripture, I'm, I really am, uh, um, I'm I come face to face in Scripture with a God who's constantly moving towards us. Mm. Um, so, so for me, the scriptural or the biblical witness is is very much to a seeking God, and and obviously the God who comes to us in Christ, and um, and then you know all the in, the incredible stories that Christ of the woman who's looking for the coin and the the shepherd who's looking. So there's a sense in which there's this objective testimony to a seeking God. I also want to be sensitive to what you've said of the person who doesn't feel sought, who Mm -hmm. feels God's absence. And the only way I can respond to that at the moment, and it will be inadequate is I, I, when I'm with someone who feels that God is not seeking them and they always feel they are seeking God or looking for God, I, I, like, to, I like to draw their attention to the possibility that their very seeking of God is, in fact an echo in their own experience of God seeking them. That, mm. their own, that almost when they say to me, you know, Trevor, I just long for God so much, but I, I don't have a sense that God's looking for me. If I can somehow maybe hold out for them the possibility that God dwells within their own longing for God, if mm. I may wa- if I may wave the Methodist flag just, uh, just for a <laughs> minute. <laughs> you know, we speak of provenient grace, that God is always going before us. And I think that God, I think that God puts our longing for God in us. It's mm. it it, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes that that eternity has been placed in each of our hearts. Mm. Um, I think of all you quoted Augustine, you know that that our that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God, that there is a longing that God that God pursues us by putting within us longings for God, longings mm. for truth. Longings for beauty, longings for connection, that that God is God actually exists in those longings and is pursuing us in those longings. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to be very sensitive to the person who feels that God is absent from them and that they are looking for God all over the place but I would want to draw that person to some of the very deep longings that do exist in their heart and maybe suggest to them that, uh, you know, I think God, God is already looking for you and is present in, the, in those very longings that you have for
0: God. Mm. Yeah, that, that was wonderful. Thank you. And um, And I think that you've partially addressed uh, my next question, that that is something that we should turn to regularly when we feel distant from God. But on a very practical level, it's a very simple question, then. What can we do in the moment when God seems distant from us?
1: I think the most important thing we can do, the most important thing we can do is to say to God, God, I'm you feel very distant at the moment from me and Mm. i would appreciate it so much if you would make known to me in some way your personal love for me so i would encourage the person to be totally honest with god about their experience um and to, to to and then to encourage them to ask most deeply for what they need from God Mm -hmm. in terms of a deeper awareness of God's personal love for them. So I'm on the side of being totally honest, Um, not to pretend to come to God in our need and to ask for what we most deeply, deeply desire from God in terms of God's presence in our
0: life, mm. yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, well, I, I think that many many Christians confuse uh, the perhaps staleness of mm-hmm. their Christian walk with right. the with the notion that God has just completely left the scene. Sure. Um, so sure. why why do you think that our spiritual lives just kind of become stagnant and stale in the first place I think there could be many
1: reasons I think uh, on the one hand on the one hand and I really stress that on the one hand it could be through I, you know it could just be a sheer neglect on my part Mm -hmm. that I just, I I just, I I kind of neglect my friendship with God. Mm -hmm. Like maybe a married person neglecting their marriage, and their marriage drifts into a stagnant situation. So on the one hand, I think It may be because of my own neglect, but it may not be because of my own neglect. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think there are times, you know, I think of the Spirit taking Jesus into the desert, which is a very barren place. I think sometimes the Spirit takes us into desert spaces, into wilderness spaces, where we sometimes don't have a felt sense of God's presence. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's in those spaces of the wilderness or the desert that God does some very deep work in our relationship with God, where I come to, the, I don't know if this makes sense. Where I come to love God for God's sake, and mm. not for what I get out of the relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think almost every person I know who's had a, who has a significant, robust relationship with God, they've had they've had times of stagnancy, times of. Of barrenness, times of dryness, Mm -hmm. but they've hung in there through those times, and they've in fact become hugely significant uh, in their overall relationship with God.
0: Yeah, all all of this presupposes that we do have a friendship with God, and not it's not just uh, some transactional thing. It's not a vending machine where I go up and you know I want my day to go well, so I just press the button and you know i say a prayer and i get a good day or um it's it's also not just that god is off in the distance he's monitoring your every footstep and every time that you say a naughty word or something then you know that's one tally against you um and that really does i think uh speak to me and why there's a problem with the pharisees who had everything right doctrinally uh well mostly um but yet God doesn't know them. Um, So, yeah, it it speaks to me that um, our actions uh, mean a lot less to God than than our friendship and that our actions will be reformed by our, our friendship with God as we become more like him.
1: I like the way that you give priority to our friendship with God. And I think our friendship with God does have, like any friendship, has different seasons. Mm -hmm. And seasons of closeness, seasons perhaps of distance. Um, But, and the important thing for me is that in those moments of uh, dryness or barrenness or is that I I remain a friend and I remain engaged in the practices of friendship with God.
0: Right. Um, Now, in our friendship with God, it's going to be important to actually hear him. (laughs) Um, So how do we hear or discern the voice of God in our lives?
1: again we could we could we could do another podcast on this uh, <laughs> and i'm going to i'm going to again just i uh, hope again not trivialise an important question of yours i think for me to 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 listen to god i think i i want and to position myself safely for a listening relationship with God, I find it really helpful to keep very close to Christ in the Gospels, that Mm -hmm. somehow as I immerse myself in the Gospels, as I immerse myself in my friendship with Christ, I get a sense of the kinds of things that are important to God. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I kind of just begin to fine tune my listening to God. So that's the one thing I want to say. I think the, um, the, uh, that, that if I want to listen to God, I, I, I stay close to Christ. I immerse myself in the Gospels. And it's through that immersion uh, in the Gospels, the immersion of myself in that friendship with Christ, within the context of that, that... that um, that I position myself to listen safely to what God may be saying to me. I Mm. think the other thing that I want to say is that, that I've come to associate God speaking to me with those movements within my life that lead me towards greater faith, greater hope, greater love for God. So Mm. You know, they are movements within my own heart and mind that move me in a certain direction. They move me towards greater faith, greater hope, greater love. They move me in the direction of the fruit of the spirit. They move me in the direction of greater life. So that hmm. would be a, an inadequate response to an important question.
0: Yeah, uh, but I I think that you you have um, given us a practical uh, guidance on how to or to test the voice of God, I guess, in our in our lives by by so. the results. So, um, so, so a, as we as we wrap up here, Trevor, um, I want I want to just ask, how can we engage uh, in spiritual formation in our churches? On a practical level, how can we implement the things that you have suggested?
1: I think, I think that every congregation should take Jesus's words very seriously where he says um, at the end of Matthew, and I would say this, and I sought to do this for 40 years, um, seek to make disciples not seek to make converts, not seek to make believers, but make disciples. Hmm. So, So for me to prioritize the making of this, to draw people into a following of Jesus, then secondly, baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and that's not just getting people wet that's immersing them in the trinitarian reality of of commu- of our communal life with the trinity so mm-hmm. so draw them into a following of jesus draw them into the trinitarian life of of our communal life with god and then teach them all the things I would I would stay very in my own life as a pastor I would really prioritize the teaching of Jesus and I would seek to help my congregation to take those words seriously and as soon as we seek to take those words seriously Teach them to obey everything that I've said. As soon as I go in that direction, I'm in the world of spiritual formation.
0: Mm. Well, lastly, Trevor. Um, well, I, I want to congratulate you just on the on the on the uh, release of your book, um, and I want to ask finally, what do you hope that readers get out of it? Simply,
1: well, I hope that it wets my simple hope and prayer is Lord, will you, as people read this book, um, will you just wet their appetites, uh, <laughs> to become, to become seekers after you in a new and a fresh and a deep way?
0: Hmm. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Trevor, for uh, coming on today. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for your time. And, uh, I really do pray that uh, God blesses the release of this book.
1: Thank you, Riley. Thank you for giving me your time as well amid the challenges you're facing. Thank you. Yes.
0: Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye.